for the honor of representing District 12 in the 74th annual Hunger Games. As usual, ladies first. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Today, we have something that I'm super thrilled about. We've got Grayson Johnson on the line. Grayson, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me here. I guess that we met at CNU, although I apologize for <laughs> not being able to process that in my memory banks. I, okay. <laughs> I know you're so forgiving. I am. Um, <laughs> I think you emailed me something you had done, but either that or I came across your work and I was just blown away by the videos that you make. Let me give a brief background for you, and then we'll talk about what we're going to chat about today. You live in Fredericton, New Brunswick. You are a planner. You have an urban planning degree. You blog at anotherplaceforme.com. A large part of what you do are these fantastic videos that really tell some amazing stories about places and about how to activate public space. Is, is that a fair, <laughs> have I done justice to your work up to this point? That's more than justice. Okay. That's generosity. <laughs> Wonderful. It's really cool because as soon as I started sharing some of your stuff on our blog, I can't tell you how many people emailed me and spoke to me and said, gosh, I really like that Grayson Johnson. And it was almost as if you were our creation. And I'm like, oh my gosh, no, she's just this amazing <laughs> person. So, Well, I have been inspired. You know, Everything that I make comes from a variety of different sources, and this is definitely one of them. So awesome. you know, I am partly your creation. Be cool. proud of it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm proud of it. One of the things that we wanted to do this year was to have you on the podcast, and not just a one-time thing, but as frequently as the two of us can get together and chat. We both did the Myers-Briggs testing and found out that we're pretty compatible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a geek huh, that comes to that stuff. So today we're going to talk about what? The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games. <laughs> so we should probably do a spoiler alert first, right? Yeah. Don't listen to this if you intend to have surprises in the future. <laughs> right, right. You and I have both read all three books. Have you seen both movies? Yeah, I just saw the second one recently. Okay. So we've seen the two movies that have been released. We've read all three books and we intend to cover the entirety of the series. So if you are listening today and you have not read the third book and you intend to go to see the movie or read the third book and you want to be surprised, just shut this podcast off right now. We're going to do you a deep injustice, right? Talk to you later. Yeah. Talk to you later. Thanks. Get your grace and fix next time. <laughs> But you and I are going to talk about the Hunger Games. And I don't want to like make you carry the load here, but why in the world is this a topic that <laughs> you and I chose to, yeah. to engage on? <laughs> well, I think the, the key thing is that we both ended up reading the series somehow over the break. I don't know yeah. actually what drove you to the series, but you know, I had a number of people recommend it to me that were very different people, you know, from very different backgrounds. So I thought, okay, I respect all of these people. And they're all so interesting. And they all seem to love these books. So I'm going to give it a shot. And we both got a lot out of them. And were able to apply as the author, I'm sure intended, a lot of the messages that were inside them, 
to our own lives. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, my wife enjoyed the books and recommended them to me. And it was funny because I had a lot of people on Facebook who, you know, I, I read the first book. It was fantastic. The second book was pretty good. And then there was this kind of recurring theme that the third book was a letdown and a disappointment. And my wife had the same kind of reaction. And my wife is a very deep thinker, a very emotional person. And I was expecting a letdown when I read the third book. And I had the exact opposite experience. I was like inspired and invigorated by the third book in a way that actually prompted me to write about it in my first blog post of this year. So I'd like to touch on some of that. I think we have some joint insights on why these were good books and why maybe even from a strong town's perspective, they have some application. I think we could start with Katniss, even though we could probably talk for like an hour on her internal turmoil this book was not just the story of a revolution and story of injustice, but to me, it was the story of the internal dialogue of this fascinating young woman who did not want to be a revolutionary, just actually wanted to kind of hunt and provide for her family and make a modest way in the world she found herself. Yeah. And that's so fair for her to want that too. You know, like you look at that and it is frustrating at times to read her dialogue and like, oh, come on, Katniss. But at the same time, you can't blame her for just wanting to look out for her family and that sort of thing. And I wonder how often in real revolutions it is those people or even on like a smaller scale, you know, they're not the revolution, but the change of a strong town, how much it's just those people that want maybe even selfishly, you know, a slightly better life for themselves if those are the people that are actually driving the revolution. Right. And maybe just for background, for those of you that haven't seen the movies or partake in the books, gosh, we should probably like set up the world. Yeah, the synopsis. Why why don't you set up the world? And then I'll I'll talk about like the actual events that take place. So I can't even remember the name of the her, it's called Penem. Penem. You know, it's Penem. That's called Penem. Okay. And they don't explain it in the movies, but in the books, it's described as this kind of apocalyptic version of North America. Like in my head, I see it as this post climate change world. Yeah, yeah. They've got 13 districts and they have this capital region at the center. And the capital region, we're told, is in the mountains. You know, I don't know where it would be located in modern day United States, but... To me, it was like Colorado. Denver, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, Um, yeah, so you're kind of picturing this place that's being protected, and it's got all of the glories of today's technology and everything that you could hope for tomorrow. And it's surrounded by these other districts that at one point had risen up together and tried to fight the capital so that they weren't enslaved by them anymore. And in order to punish these districts, the capital has now enforced something called the Hunger Games, which is this really grotesque idea that there's two children that are drawn from each district, and they're forced to fight to the death on reality TV. And everyone is forced to watch, and everyone is supposed to act like these Hunger Games are like the Olympics and celebrate them and cheer for their children to be killing other children. So it's this terrible, terrible world in which most of the country is deeply impoverished. And 
they're kind of divided up by the industry that they specialize in. So, you know, if they're on the coast, then they may have a shipping industry or fishing. There's the woodsmen, there's the miners. The district in question, you know, District 12, where Katniss lives, is coal miners. I can't remember all of the other ones. But yeah, yeah, it's this kind of divided world of people that are enslaved to the capital. Well, and in drops into that world, this woman, Katniss Everdeen, who is, is actually, I think it's fair to say, depicted as a older girl. At this point, the the reaping, the annual picking of the people, two from each district that will go to the Hunger Games are specifically amongst young kids. I mean, I think it was 12 to 18. Is that what the ages were? Something like that. Something like that. The idea is it's a way to exert authority and control and remind everybody that the most precious among you could be taken at any time at the whim of the capital. Katniss is thrust into this because her sister is picked and she volunteers for her sister and she finds herself in the capital in this bizarre world. And this is maybe where we can start talking about her personality with that context, because there were a lot of times where when you're reading the book, her internal dialogue is... Can I just say annoying, maybe even? (laughs) Yeah, she's not supposed to be a likable character. No, no. In the movie, she is beautiful. Well, yes, Jennifer Lawrence, right? (laughs) Yes. I mean, she's beautiful. She is somewhat glamorous. She is a little, I don't want to say sassy, because there's more spunk than sass. Yeah. But you don't, in the movie, get the depth of the inner turmoil that is going on that you get in the book. She's not the most endearing person. Yeah, and I I actually really like that. I mean, another part of this book that I think is really important to me is just kind of the feminism aspect of it, where you have this female author that's written this very strong female hero. You know, she's got a lot of depth to her. You don't have to like her. And and she's still this hero without being this perfect image of, of a girl. And I love also that there's just kind of this complete reversal of gender roles everywhere. Like you look at the men in the book, the two male leads, and they're right. just these like one dimensional characters. Right. And right. so I really liked just the interest of that. And it was annoying to read. And it was annoying because it goes against everything we're trained to appreciate and to like. That challenge was something that I could appreciate a lot after. And I don't know how much of it was intentional by the author, but yeah, yeah I loved that part of it, of it just being like... Yeah, she's allowed to be annoying. She's a person. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't thought about that. The kind of juxtaposition with Gail and Peta, the two, you know, one dimensional characters. I did find that fascinating because to me, and maybe this is, you know, me as a man not picking up on that, the side of it you just described. I looked at Gail and Peta as two people who represented like two vastly different paths to deal with the turmoil around them. And Katniss as being the internal cauldron where all of that bubbled up. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. You've got Gail, who I actually, you know, mentally aligned with, who saw the world in very black and white. There's good, there's evil. I want to be on the side of good. Whatever you have to do to fight evil is, in a sense, justified. He was a very good person. I mean, I don't think the book never made him into a a bad person. Yeah. But he didn't have any of the internal conflict that Katniss had. No, he was a martyr. You know, it was just so clear for him from the beginning what needed to be done. 
My brother and I were joking about this and being like, oh, the book should be about Gail. He's the real good one. But <laughs> it wouldn't yeah. be nearly as interesting if it was about Gail. It, it wouldn't be at all. It would be your standard like hero story. Yeah, exactly. Peta on the other side, who until the very end was almost annoying. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like there's no, it never explains why he's just so excessively in love with Katniss. Right. And it's all he cares about. And right. then he's like, yeah, you know, you're all I have in the world. He doesn't even care about his family. It's just. Right. Yeah. It was so weird. I was struggling with how to describe him, you know, today in this podcast, because he's not a, like a Jesus character, but he has some of the, and this is me who like studies early Christian <laughs> writings. Like it's an obsession of mine. He almost comes across as one of those like early Christian martyrs where it's just like, okay, here's where my love and my faith is. And I'm blinded to everything else, yeah. uh, including my own needs, my own wants, you know, what have you. It's a depth of love and giving that she describes that was so over the top that it was to me, almost annoying. Mm -hmm. I felt guilty being annoyed by PETA. Well, and that's the thing is like Gail and PETA both make you feel guilty because Gail is just, you know, you're aligned with him, but you're like, oh, in the real world, would I be that brave? Would I be the one that goes out there and stays behind and fights? And then for PETA, you wonder, oh, you know, would I really dedicate myself to this person I love? Would I have that in me? And so both of them make you feel really uncomfortable. And then when you look at Katniss, you feel like you're above her <laughs> because she's just like... right. Uh, <laughs> she's annoying, right? Right. I mean, she's almost, I won't say she's self-absorbed because she's not like self-absorbed in a selfish way, but she doesn't want to be burdened with everything that those two carry along with them every day. Yeah. I see things through the strong town's lens and this book kind of hit me as having this internal dialogue that I think sometimes gets lost in the approach that we have and we take. On one side, you have Gail and sees everything in black and white. To me, that's almost a very comforting world. You know, we can look at certain things from a strong town's perspective as being good and certain things as being bad. And we want to do more of the good and less of the bad. And, and it's a conflict and let's push, push, push. And you have PETA on the other side who really just wants to like hyper focus on the well-being of this one person, you yeah. know, like I'm not interested in the revolution. I think there's right and wrong, but it's not my focus. I just want this one thing to work out. But then you have Katniss and her internal dialogue. It opened me up to the cost of transition on people and the way that the whole three books unfolded and how she had this internal torment that as a reader, you are continuously bombarded with mm -hmm. and how easy it is to discount that internal torment. No? Yeah, it's really easy to just, you know, think about where you need to be going, what it's going to end up as, and then just completely discount how a lot of people will be, look, they think it's horrendous, you know, the changes that need to happen. And, and yeah, and it's easy to pick sides as well and really to align yourself with the people that already feel the same way that you do. So yeah, she really does represent that. I don't want to get too personal, but I grew up in and around alcoholics <laughs> is probably the best way to put it. And there's a certain like view that you develop, especially when you're not in that situation where you're kind of rooting for people to get worse. 
You know, you're rooting for people to like hit rock bottom because in the world of someone who has a drug or an alcohol problem, that's like the only point where they're able to kind of turn things around. Yeah. What you find yourself in that situation and what I find myself a lot of times in the situation of, of cities is like, I'm almost rooting for failure. I'm almost rooting for things to go bad because it's only when they get worse and get difficult that we actually are going to be open up to make tough decisions for things to start to get better. Mm-hmm. Following this narrative of, of Katniss Everdeen, you realize that, man, that's a difficult journey in and of itself. Yeah, she does come through it. You know, I should say that at the end, you know, she does really make you proud and she does the right thing. But like you see the toll that takes on her and she's really, really mentally very ravaged by it. It's hard to think of watching a place you love go through that and seeing who comes through it and who doesn't and and having to be a part of that and, and really convince yourself that it was for the better. By the end, you can say she comes out for the better. But at what cost? She essentially loses everyone who matters to her. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a far reach to say she borders on insanity by the end. Yeah. The book ends with a very comforting narrative on how she starts to rebuild her life. But I think that if you had presented to her at the very beginning, here is one track in life that would essentially be keeping the kind of miserable life that you have but keeping it the way it is or this, you know, horrible transition in which you will lose so much, but at the end you will have a chance and the people who follow you will have a chance for a better life. I don't know if she would have chosen the second option. Well, and it's so ambiguous as well, because in the books, it's not entirely clear that the victors of the revolution are going to do a better job. I mean, they have, you know, some semblance of democracy in their new world, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're on the right track or that there's no promise that it is actually going to be better. It's just this idea, you know, that, well, we know what we have right now is terrible and this alternative could be better. Right. And that's a heavy thing to deal with as well, which I think is kind of why she ends up going back and and isolating herself at the end and just saying, you know, I just want to be you around the things I know. The things that give me a a modicum of comfort. Exactly. You know, teach my girls to hunt, that sort of thing. You've got Gail who, this is the thing about revolutionaries. It's, let's just roll the dice and we'll see where we end up. I think a lot of us are drawn to that personality, the personality that would risk potential calamity for the sake of, you know, an attempt at making things better. Yet, I wonder if you turned the world over to the pitas of this world, if we'd actually, at the end of the day, maybe not have revolutionary change, but be a little bit better off. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting thing. I'd love to spend some time trying to think of if there is a society or a community that does sort of operate under the PETA code. (laughs) It would be hard because the natural instinct of a change personality is more towards the Gale type of personality. You know, here's how we push change. Here's how we start a revolution. Here's how we create things. Yet, you know, at the end of the day, aren't we all trying to get to where PETA's at? Isn't the peace and serenity of a garden and a bakery and a little bit of art, isn't that kind of like the ideal that we're actually trying to get to? 
But PETA is in exceptional circumstances. You know, when he was in the district, he was one of the few families that had food on the table. So, of course, it's easy for him to say, yeah, I, I just want life to go back to the way it was. And I want to have my bakery in my garden. But, you know, you look next door at District 11, and they've got armed guards and several levels of barbed wire fences and they're out in the fields. And it's no coincidence that that entire district is people of color. And, you know, it's just, I don't think that everybody has the option of being the PETA and everyone is motivated by love, right? You know, Gail and Katniss, PETA, they're all motivated by love. And it's just in a different form. Gail extends his love to all of society. Katniss bounces back and forth thinking about, okay, well, I do want to be this revolutionary. I do want to be the symbol and care about everyone. But she's also just so motivated by her family. And then PETA is just completely committed to one person. Well, I guess two people in a way, you know, in a sense that he cares about himself because all he cares about is Katniss. So he wants the two of them to live forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> right, right. Although it showed time and again that he's willing to sacrifice himself for her. Yeah, because he doesn't think his life would be worth living without her. So right, right. I don't know. I don't yeah, think he's up yeah. there. <laughs> it's hard not to read the books and see. I mean, you you read like through the looking glass, and it's supposed to be this uh, analogy of of America at that time. And that to me was like I had to take a class in college to actually understand that. <laughs> this one it seems like the parallels are maybe easier for a schlub like me to grasp. When you read this, did you see the capital and these districts through a modern prism? And was that an easy connection for you or not? Oh, absolutely. But that's sort of in my character. You know, like I've kind of rejected a lot of the the world that I grew up in from like the yeah, age of yeah. high school, right? So yeah. I've been thinking about these things for a really long time. I've never really thought about it in a violent revolution at all. And I still don't really think that's in the cards. But yeah, I've definitely thought about kind of the dichotomies out there. And even when I was reading this book, I think I mentioned to you, I was watching the New Year's coverage while I was reading one of the books, or I wasn't watching it, but it was on the TV in the background and my family yeah. was. And yeah. and just seeing the the kind of entertainment on there, I was like, oh my God, this is the capital, you know, like okay. just the way that people were talking and just like the, the distraction of it and just the pointlessness and out of control luxury and celebration as a distraction from all the things that people are actually really going through right now and the challenges that we have to overcome. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, laying things down and partying for a little bit, but you can tell when it's being really constructed and it's being spoon fed to you in a way to manipulate you. I see that a lot. I mean, I don't watch TV anymore other than a a couple shows on Netflix, but whenever I turn it on and I can see kind of the network TV agenda, (laughs) it's it, it really, boggles my mind on how that exists and how people, how do people feel about it? I don't know. It's just, do other people feel like this is fake in the same way that I do? I unplugged the cable a couple of years ago too. And that was a turning point in my life. Actually having kids was because we just shut it off, but actually like saying, you know, I'm better off without this really like intellectually helped. But let me ask you this. I started out identifying with the districts Like, okay, I am identifying with these 12 districts and I'm looking at the Capitol as being in a modern sense, you know, in the US, Washington, DC and Wall Street. I don't know what in a Canadian sense you would say, but you know, to me, I started looking at it like that. And as I got into the book, 
I started thinking, no, <laughs> I live in the capital. <laughs> the capital is this modern American edifice that we've kind of artificially constructed that we all, as Americans, as North Americans to a degree, I mean, you share a very similar culture in, you know, north of the border here. I started to look at us as members of the capital. Is that where you went to? I was torn as to whether I would be more on the side of District 13 or the capital, because as you kind of see through the book, they're almost two birds of a feather. I see myself as someone who's had every great fortune and someone who really benefits from the efforts that other people have to go through. You know, like all of the things that I would love to see happen in the world. There's people that are way more vulnerable than I am that are on the front lines fighting that. Well, one of the network shows that I do watch is Up with Chris Hayes, which kind of <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> reflects my view on the world. But um, he, <laughs> yeah, he did a lot of coverage of the fast food strikes. Okay. And you look at these people out there that are so, so vulnerable, you know, it's very difficult for them to take time off work when they can't even make rent. And yet, those are the people that are fighting the battles. It's hard to imagine where I would sit because like, I'm benefiting from being in a position of just really great fortune. And yet I do identify with the struggles of other, but I don't know how to pay my debt to society. That was one of the things that I think in a conscient sense, when the capital was represented, pretty much everybody there with a very few exceptions, Effie, some of the uh, stylists, you know, who grew sympathetic over time to the plight uh, of those in the district. But pretty much everyone else was just betrayed as kind of hedonistic, live for themselves, not worry about the plight of others. And you would like to think, I say this, you know, not with you in mind, but more thinking of myself, you'd like to think that even with the good fortune that we enjoy today, you have compassion for others and you understand their plight. And you, there's a meme that's been going around on Facebook and Twitter the last couple of months of, you know, first world problems. And people will gripe about having to park too far away at the gym or, you know, something being delayed or, and, you know, someone will just put hashtag first world problems. I found it snarky at first and now I kind of like it. Because there's a part of, I think, our lives here today that is just so vastly out of touch with the condition of most people, not only in the world, but even in this country, you know, even in this continent. I found myself thinking, no, I actually maybe do have compassion for people, but I live in the capital. I don't know as I fully understand what it's like to live in one of these districts. Oh, I definitely don't. <laughs> you get a taste of it in certain ways and having a taste of it, you know, being out of school and trying to get into the job market at this time and, and having student debt and that sort of thing, like gives me a very, very small taste, right. um, which has been extremely healthy for me and in, in a way that it's opened up my mind and it's had me seeking, you know, what is it like to live in other circumstances? And so, but I wouldn't know, I don't know what our districts are today. You know, I could guess, but I think that there's so much out there that, I'm just so unaware of that I wouldn't even know where to draw the boundaries of the districts. My grandfather passed away three years ago, grew up in the Great Depression. It was fascinating to talk to him. He wouldn't always talk about it, but sometimes he would. And to hear him tell stories about life in the Depression 
I always had the impression that he thought he did better than most people, that mm-hmm. he was a little bit better off. But then when you would hear him describe like his life and he grew up in a family that was broken, he wound up as a young kid leaving, young, young, leaving and living with his grandparents. When he was a teenager, he moved out. You know, this was in the depths of the depression. They were not able to, you know, support him. And he basically wound up moving in with this farmer. He lived in the guy's barn and would work all day for him. And the guy would feed him in exchange for essentially his labor. He was allowed to sleep in the hayloft and eat three meals a day at the family's table. Mm-hmm. He thought he was doing well. <laughs> it was never told as a story of complaint. It was always told as a story of this is how it worked for me. And boy, was I lucky. People like that who are fading from our memory. I have these stories, but I certainly don't have those experiences. And I just wonder how fragile are we as a country, as a people, when we don't have memories of that degree of hardship, when literally like hashtag first world problems become huge burdens that we have to overcome. It becomes dangerous to almost try and compare challenges and compare hardship because I don't really know what measuring stick you would be able to use for it. You know, it's very (laughs) clear that it's a lot easier to walk from a far parking spot to the gym than it is to live in a barn. And you can look at that (laughs) and say, well, clearly it's a lot more difficult. But I don't know if that conversation will lead us to the right state of mind almost, you know, to think of ourselves as unable to rise to the occasion because we've never had to. And there's all sorts of challenges that people face today that are a lot to deal with. And right. I think that people are strong and I think they prove themselves strong over and over again. I think what we are missing a lot of today is the connection between people because nobody's really strong alone. You have to have people that you can count on. And in the past, things were set up a little bit differently. So it was just easier to have a lot of close sort of neighbors or perhaps your church group or something like that. Those tight networks are really the, the biggest thing that we're missing now. That was one of the things that really kind of stuck out in the books to me is part of the, let's say the humiliation of the Hunger Games or part of the, you know, the basic premise of this battle that they would put these 24 young kids in was the notion that those bonds would go away. You were alone. Only one person was going to walk out of that thing. Mm-hmm. And you saw some of these in the first book and really in the second book as well. You, you saw them forge some of these bonds, but they would always call them allies or, you know, alliances. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you had two allies and it got down to just the three of you, you were expected to then turn on your allies. Yeah. That was very unsettling. And I think it was unsettling because we are as humans, cognizant of the fact that those social bonds are really what make us who we are. There's something dehumanizing about knowing that that was taken away from them in this very artificial contest that was set up. Well, I think it's also noteworthy that Katniss never really had to kill in cold blood. It was always in defense. It was always a bad guy, you know? Right. So I don't know if we would have been able to accept her as a character if she had to kind of do the whole cold-blooded murder thing. I think that is really important how that played out because she showed that you could be friends with people in there. And if she and Rue and Peta had all gone to the end, 
I can't picture the situation in which they would actually be killing each other. I feel like it would be someone sacrificing themselves for the others. I had that same kind of awareness that, okay, how does this play out? And in fact, at the end of the first book, it is PETA and Katniss, and they are confronted with the notion that one would have to kill the other. Mm-hmm. PETA says, okay, take me, you know, it's me, get it over with, let's go. And they do the dramatic double suicide thing. Yeah. And they were ready to do it too. And that is kind of the spark then that ignites the revolution in the telling of the story. But you're not confronted with that. And I do agree. I, I think they would have been less redeemable if they hadn't been allowed to pass by that that nasty side of it. Yeah. Just like in the second book where you had a much stronger alliance. Were there more people on their side? Were there more people that were more interested in being in friendship and kind of sticking it to the man? that those people would have all made it to the end and they would have kind of agreed some way at the end how they were going to end it and right. how how they were going to do it in the most, I don't know, humane or consensual way, I, which is a ridiculous thing to think about. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Oh, yeah. It was the humanity of it. And this is kind of where, to me, when you look at the world that we live in here and good fiction makes you think about your life and your world, I tend to agree with you on the lack of connections the lack of social connections, the lack of that tight bond that my grandpa would describe. When I would hear my grandpa talk about the depression, you would get the impression that this was the best time of his life, Hmm. that literally things will never be as good as that. And while, you know, he went on to work at the paper mill and become a foreman and, you know, retire and have 23 grandkids, you know, that lived near him and, you know, things were very good for him. He never would discuss other parts of his life with as much kind of satisfaction and glee as he would growing up in the depression. There's a book that I got a few years back about the depression in Australia And the author made the argument, I I can't remember the name of the book and it's not here on my shelf, so I can't quote it, but the author made the argument that people were much happier during the depression than they have been at any other point in history. And his argument centered around the premise that when you had more free time, when you had more need for the assistance and the help of others that you created these really strong social bonds that allowed you to appreciate and enjoy life without maybe all the comforts that you were missing. I don't know what you think about that, but to me, it seems like part of your work or part of your kind of calling is to raise some awareness of those things that we are missing. Yeah. One of the things that would be hugely important to me and and rewarding to me if I were able to do it is, is just coming up with some sort of project here where people can work side by side and painting a fence, putting up something, just because I feel like those kind of bonds of helping each other out in a time of need is, I feel like that's such an enriching relationship. And I experience that all the time because I have a huge family. And I know that you know, I'm mentally stable because of that. You know, it's my family and it's being able to lean on them and count on them. That does that for me. And so few people are able to do that. And I think that we would all be happier and our towns would be better. Our towns would be stronger, if you will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, were we to have those stronger relationships and, and a reason to knock on someone's door and ask for help and have that feel normal. 
and, and know that the help would be returned. So you don't feel like you're in debt because you know that you'll help them out. You know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Right. Can that happen? I want to go back to District 12 in a sec, but can that happen in a society with as much affluence as ours has? Well, I think that the affluence is more and more being shuttled into certain areas. So there's a lot of people that don't experience that. I mean, I'm hoping to test it out. I'm hoping to try it. And I won't stop until I can figure out the answer to that. But if you go back to district, if it couldn't, I mean, (laughs) yeah, no, I I totally agree. But I, I struggle with it because, you know, you look and my grandfather, the same person in the 1930s as he was in the 1950s. Yet, obviously, the social bonds were much stronger because of the hardship that people found themselves in. Now, the hardship was also much greater and the suffering was much greater. Mm-hmm. My central thing that I just ponder, is there an inverse relationship there? In other words, as the affluence grows and as you need the people around you less and less, is it preordained or is it destiny that you'll have less social cohesion? I don't know the answer to that. I kind yeah. of lament that it might be, but I live in a very small sample size, right? It's a really fascinating question. I mean, the only thing I can really look at, and I, I don't know the answer to it, but I read something really remarkable by Barbara Kingsolver, and she was talking about how her uh, agrarian upbringing was really, really important to the way that she wanted to raise her kids. And and so much of it was because of, you know, the distinction that you make between needs and wants and the the way that you help your neighbors out. And, you know, all the kids would be out of school because they would all be drying tobacco together and that sort of thing. And I feel like there's probably a model out there that's still working in an agrarian society, in a society where the job is too big for one person to do. And you see that kind of brotherhood or sisterhood. But it's a fascinating question that I don't know the answer to. I just think that there are really interesting places that we could look. If we look at District 12 and we just take the characters of Gail and PETA, which one had more social capital? You know, had more social connectedness. By a long stretch, it was Gail, right? Yeah. Why don't you describe the two of them in terms of their relationship with those around them? Because I I do think there's a fascinating juxtaposition between those two. And I see where you're going with this, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. (laughs) So PETA is a very, very lovely man, boy, man. I don't know how old he is, but PETA's lovely gentleman and he is the son of a baker. So he was well fed and he had a house to live in roof over his head and he went to school and he knew people because his dad was a baker. So his extent of knowledge was, you know, people coming in to get bread, which is probably a great relationship that he had with a lot of people. Gail, on the other hand, had a large family and he was the eldest son. His father was killed in a coal mining accident, if I remember correctly. Right. right. And um, he ended up having to be the provider for his family along with his mother. So his mother was doing laundry and he was out hunting and getting food for his brothers and sisters. And he developed quite a network there of people that respected him because he was a great hunter and he brought them good game and everything, but also because they respected what he was doing, kind of the responsibility he was taking. So he had all of these friends that he made through the black market. When the time came to evacuate district 12. He was one of the ringleaders that did that. And I guess people just knew that they could trust him because of those ties that he had. He treated people fairly, was essentially a leader just by his, this is Gail, by his moral fortitude and just dealing with people. And, you know, you think of the black market as being this underworld, but it was actually the place where a lot of these deep 
social connections were made. Even in the final parts of book three, there's still, who is the cook that wound up living with Katniss at the very end? I can't remember her Gracie name. Gracie Say or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how to say her name. Yeah, yeah. I like her. <laughs> and, and it was like, this was just a person who would buy and swap the stuff that they had caught when they were hunting. PETA, tell the story about him with the bread with Katniss. Because this is one of the things that was so confusing to me watching the movie and yeah. not having read the book that, you know, when I read the book became really yeah. kind of emblematic of, of PETA. Yeah. I remember watching the movie being like, are people going to get this? It was completely lost on me. It was almost Katniss. vulgar in the movie, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Katniss's father was also killed in the same coal mining accident that Gail's was. And so she was in the same situation where she had to provide for her family and she became a hunter eventually. But before she was comfortable hunting, there was a very dark period in which her mom was grieving and couldn't provide for her and her sister Prim. And um, and so they were just withering away. They were just starving. And one time she was stumbling through the street, going home, thinking, how am I supposed to get food for my sister? She stopped behind Pita's house or the bakery. And uh, I guess that Pita saw her at some point. He purposely burnt some bread that was in the oven so that he could throw it out so that she could have some food to bring home. And that kind of turned the boat around for Katniss. After that, she took responsibility and started hunting and doing all that stuff. In the movie, it comes across as this well-off person throwing a bone to someone who's destitute. In the book, you find out that, you know, Peter was beaten for burning this bread or, or yeah. you know, and that he did this intentionally because he wanted to help her, but he couldn't do it too overtly because he would get in even more trouble. The social cohesion part is another aspect of this story because you see that in the hardship, the social cohesion grows. And, you know, Gail, because he had to do more, because he had to provide more, had a really high level of social cohesion. On the other hand, which one would you rather have been? <laughs> you would rather be living in Peta's family where you were going to get a meal. You were going to not go hungry as often you were kind of guaranteed a job that was not going to result in you dying in a coal mining accident. Gail's future was kind of mapped out. He was going to be a coal miner, which he ultimately did. And he was probably going to die someday in the mines, maybe to kind of close the loop on the whole revolution thing. Mm -hmm. This is what I struggle with because you look at the things that we're trying to get to, you know, we're trying to get to, good social cohesion. We're trying to get to people knowing their neighbors and working together. We're trying to get to a place where we can make good decisions about how we're building our communities and how we're inhabiting them together in a place. I'm just struck again and again with how affluence or how our ability to manufacture prosperity out of thin air really makes it difficult for us to get to some of those places where we think we would, in theory, be better off. Mm -hmm. That was what Katniss was about. Because Katniss was very happy. Not very happy, but if you would have left the book to her, like, Katniss, write this book yourself. How does it go? She'd be like, I stay here and I hunt and I take care of my family and then we all die of old age someday. There would have been no revolution. There would have been no substantive change. There would have been nobody dying, nobody fighting, but nothing would have gotten any better. There just would have been stasis. Is that bad? And that's what I struggle with. What's wrong with that? 
I don't know. And we don't have that image of the world after. We don't have the image of the other districts after to see if, if they're any better off. Right. But I think it is kind of the really critical point you're talking about with affluence being the enemy of this. And I think that really makes a case for strong towns, actually. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'm not arguing for poverty and I'm certainly yeah. not living this ascetic, impoverished life myself. I don't wish hardship on people, but like the alcoholic trying to hit rock bottom, you know, I, I look at my city and I say, if my city was totally broke, mm-hmm. we would do things a lot differently and yeah. we would be a lot better off. Yeah. Necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. Right? And it's the fact that we're only marginally broke that we continue to do really dumb things that leave the majority of the people here behind. And a lot of the distraction comes in there too. It's, you know, like you, you don't realize how broke you are or you, you feel like things are okay because of all the distraction, all of the kind of dangly, pretty shiny things that people put in front of you. Right. And if people were to focus on what's at hand, then maybe it would be a different story. I don't know. I, I just, I find it so difficult to hold anything against anyone, any of the decisions that they make. Cause I know that everybody's just got such right. a maze behind them that right. is behind everything. You know, there's no way that I can, judge. <laughs> right. I dropped my girls off at school today and I'm heading over to the office, which is like six blocks away. It's snowing here today. It's overcast. It's windy and it's really kind of nippy cold. The kind that burns your face, you know, mm-hmm. but there were two people out one with like a walker, not the kind of walker that an old person uses, but one that has like the basket and stuff in front. So like yeah. the kind of walker that you would use to go to the grocery store. Right. They were trying to make their way down the street. And of course, there's no sidewalks. Where there are a few sidewalks, they're not shoveled or maintained. This person was walking down the middle of the street on kind of a side street. You know, I saw this person and later on, I saw another person kind of trying to make their way through it too. And I I just thought, gosh, we just spent two years ago, $9 million to widen this two-lane shortcut into a four-lane shortcut on the far edge of town. The chamber was for it. The Economic Development Commission was for it. The council was for it. The staff was for it. The college out there was for it. The Chamber of Commerce, all these people were for this project. And I just looked and said, gosh, look at all the people we're leaving behind. I mean, look at all the people that we don't even ponder their existence. I can't help but be drawn to the notion that if we were broke, Like if we didn't have the money to do the $9 million project out on the edge, maybe we wouldn't have the money to put in the sidewalks either, but the people making the decisions would be a lot closer to the people who need the sidewalks Mm -hmm. than the people who enjoy the extra 45 seconds you save with the shortcut. Even just that switch in perspective to try and think about things from the the view of someone who's, you know, a senior that's walking with a walker or a mother with a stroller or something like that, whatever we do for the city that is in their interest is generally better for everyone. You know, I did my last post on dog walkers. And right, now, right, yeah. You know, what's good for dog walkers is usually pretty good for everyone, actually. Right. And you could still be wealthy and, and make the right decisions as long as you're looking at it from the right perspective because all of those things make the city a, a stronger place, a more viable place. I'm going to keep thinking about that concept because – you do wonder if money is the source of all evil. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'll say I'm not arguing for national impoverishment. There's a part of me that sees economic hardship du jour coming in the finance and economics world. They're called doomers. 
I try not to be like a doomer in my day to day life, but yet, I mean, still like housing prices are overvalued by double. You know, you've got huge corrections. You've got pension funds that are barely funded that, you know, someone's going to get hurt at some point badly. I see all of these huge imbalances and I just, there's a part of me that says, okay, I'm Gail. The revolution is coming. I can see it. I can see it building and I can see something going to break. Let's just get it on. Let's just do it. And then the inner like Katniss comes out and says, you know, that's going to be really painful. (laughs) And a lot of people are going to get hurt in the process. So don't be so hasty. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's an answer to that, but this book more than any book that I've read recently forced me to kind of deal with the cost of that transition and left me feeling rather uncomfortable really. And I think, you know, rightly so that's probably the intention of the author is to have us think seriously about these things. Yeah. At the end of the book, I was expecting a huge letdown because everybody has said they hated book three. (laughs) Everybody that I spoke with, I just thought it ended so beautifully. In fact, I I reread the very end a couple times. It kind of left it up to your imagination, like how things would unfold. But it was such a soft, beautiful landing, starting with PETA planting the primrose bushes. Tell them about the book, the scrapbook that they make. You tell them about the scrapbook. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, yeah, that was at the very end. You'll do a better job than I (laughs) Where Katniss is actually working with a therapist of sorts. And she had found that one of the best ways to cope with all of the sorrow that she was feeling for everyone that she'd lost and everyone that had died on her account almost was to come up with this scrapbook where she told the stories of the people that were lost in that journey and the people that did suffer and they were almost pawns in the game to make sure that those stories were told. And I think that that's really symbolic of, you know, when we do look at the pain that is inevitably ahead and who knows where it's going to hit hardest and and who's going to suffer the most. But I think the most important thing is that we keep remembering that everybody is human and, and everybody has their story and, and we should respect that and, and think about it as these are going down, you know, not think of people as just numbers. I think that's beautiful. And and I think that's where we should end this. To me, that's what this is about is how we go through this transition and not forget the people that we're inevitably going to leave behind. How do we do this? How do we build strong towns? without considering all them. I think that's our great challenge. It could be us, Chuck. It could be. Here's our story for the record. (laughs) We could be some of the people to fall. Who knows? It could be. The great challenge that we face right now as a country, as you know, in the US and I think in Canada as well, is how we face this coming transition without reverting to the historic role that the underclass has played. And I think, you know, today does now, but I think that that could get a lot worse if we're not cognizant of it. I feel that that has to be a local issue. If we in our communities don't step up and address that, no one's going to. What I would wish for everyone is, is just compassion. You know, I wish that on myself. I try to be compassionate in everything that I do. And I think that's kind of the best policy on the local level is just thinking about things in terms of compassion. Grayson Johnson, thanks so much for being on the podcast. You're going to come on again, right? 
Sure, I would love to. You and I kind of swapped a list of topics. Your voice adds so much to our conversation. You know, there's a lot of people listening to this right now who have probably tuned out because they want to talk about dollars and cents and hear me bash engineers and what have you. I hope they hung through to the end because I do think that this is an equally important part of the Strong Towns conversation, one that I hope you'll help me in the coming years to continue to highlight. So thanks so much. I would be honored to. Thank you very much. Grayson Johnson, another place for me. Thanks everybody for tuning in this week and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah. upset when I told people where I came from down in Los Angeles because I always got the same response. Canada? Wow. Must have been cold. Now I just go along with them. Yes. Canada. It was a frozen hostile wasteland. And there was much work to be done if we were to survive the elements. After boring a hole through the ice to find food, my good friend Nantuck and I would build an igloo to protect ourselves from polar bears and flying hockey pucks.